Hello and welcome to Front and Center, a show dedicated to insights and perspectives on commercial real estate investment across the public and private markets. For more information, please visit centersquare.com. Welcome back to another episode of Front and Center. I'm Uma Moriarty, Senior Investment Strategist and Global ESG Lead here at Center Square. And I'm here today as usual with Scott Crow, President and Chief Investment Strategist, along with two guests from our private equity platform today. Jeff Reeder, Managing Director, who you've heard from over several prior episodes, and Victoria Madrid, Vice President for our private equity platform. We're excited to have them here today to dive a little bit further into the industrial sector overall, but specifically a few more of the niche subsectors within industrial that we've spent our time looking at more recently. They've been on the road looking at some of these opportunities in Houston most recently, so thank you to both of you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Maybe, Jeff, we'll start with you. You know, we've chatted a few times on some of the alternative property types that we've invested in across our value-add strategy, and recently we've looked at a lot of different flavors of industrial, right? Last mile, cold storage, now service industrial. Can you kind of just set the stage for the dynamics that are playing out across the traditional industrial market and why we've shifted our focus to some of these other niche property types of industrial? Absolutely. And thanks again for having me here. Uh, I always enjoy these conversations. So starting with traditional industrial, um, when we talk about that dynamics, it really starts with supply and demand. After several years of e-commerce growth and projected strong growth in e-commerce, the need for efficient, high throughput distribution to satisfy consumer demand just drove a lot of capital to invest in development. And a lot of large industrial spaces were being built. There was strong demand from tenants and the tenants were competing for space and taking more space than they needed in anticipation of this future growth and strong rents and and all that. And the abundance of cheap and uh, available capital led to a large increase in supply of of big bulk distribution buildings. It became the darling of investors who were attracted to that strong rental growth and led to lofty valuations. So where that leads us is today, you know, we're starting to see an increase in sublease space from tenants who took on that excess space. Um, and now given the uncertainty, they're trying to lay off some of it. But larger tenants are delaying decisions just as that increase in supply is being delivered. Uh, so we're starting to see a slowdown in rent growth. Just what we saw the last few years just wasn't sustainable. You know, during this period, Center Square was evaluating the data and, and, and looking at relative valuations in the private markets. So we just chose to steer clear of, I'll call it this more commodity, big box distribution space. Uh, it was just too easy to develop, too much of it was getting developed. Uh, we looked at the number of large users that you needed, and it's just a smaller pool of, of potential tenants to absorb all these large blocks of space. Uh, and then again, the, the premium valuations. So where we focused was on these infill last mile warehouses, specifically those with vacancy. Again, just given the premium valuations that were being paid for the fully leased mark-to-market rent growth profiles. Um, so we, we preferred within our value-add fund to buy at a better basis, uh, reposition the product for, to meet the modern needs, and then lease it up to a wider yield on cost relative to where we assumed at least an eventual expansion of cap rates would be at exit. Yeah, and the other thing that we really focused on was this last mile product that has your real competitive advantages in terms of location and also a larger pool of these smaller tenants that you would appeal to needing this critical space that was closer to their customers to effectively and efficiently serve rooftops and businesses. And they'll pay more in rent for those close-in locations. 
um, since the rent is a relatively small component of the cost structure of their businesses compared to labor and transportation. We also focus on cold storage, which my partner Victoria will cover. But again, essentially, because it's specialized non-commodity product, that was really mission critical to the operators and, and end users. And also the outdated supply right now, uh, just not sufficient to meet the growing demand and, and really the needs of these modern cold storage users. Um, and then one other niche sector where we've been really active is what we call service industrial. It has some similarities to last mile warehouses in that it's smaller infill product, variety of small businesses that houses kind of mission critical operations for them to serve their surrounding customers. Again, the rooftops and businesses. We really like that product as well, given the supply demand fundamentals, um, superior valuations. It's hasn't been chased by that lower cost institutional capital yet, uh, historically. Um, so those are some of the things that we like and, and why. And Victoria, speaking of cold storage, you were very involved in our first foray into this part of the industrial ecosystem with our investment in Houston Coalport. Could you talk to the audience about what cold storage is and how it's different from how people think of traditional industrial? Absolutely. So I define cold storage as a specialized warehouse where the temperatures are controlled. Think of an extremely large walk-in refrigerator or freezer. And ultimately, the facility is designed to store perishable items. It's usually food products, but there are other uses as well, such as medicine and pharmaceuticals. The way that they differ compared to traditional industrial are a couple of factors. So firstly, the physical aspects are a lot different. You typically see the four concrete tilt walls in traditional industrial versus cold storage utilizes insulated metal panels. You also have very complex refrigerated systems and vapor barriers in cold storage to basically ensure effective airflow and temperature distribution. Even the fire suppression system, for example, is different. Obviously, if you have the incorrect suppression system, you have water in the fire sprinklers freezing before they can even do their job. So ultimately, all of these physical aspects come back to one main goal, which is the temperature control. I'd say secondly, the major difference is it's extremely operationally intensive compared to traditional industrial. In addition to staying on top of the facility systems that I mentioned, there's a whole cold chain management process from storing, packaging, tracking, and transporting the cold product. And lastly, cold storage development is just generally more expensive, sometimes twice or three times the cost per foot than traditional warehouses, primarily for all of the reasons that I already mentioned. And Victoria, maybe what was it about the sector and then specifically about this opportunity that we worked on here that got you so excited about the investment? Yeah, it was an interesting time when we first were looking at this particular investment. It was late 2020 when the world was still chaos from the pandemic. And we were seeing the supply chain issues that were happening, also the increased demand for cold storage space and the accelerated year and reassuring that was happening. And we really conducted our research and found that this was a fragmented space and the existing inventory was extremely outdated and inefficient. I think at the time, 78% of the existing assets and cold in the entire nation were built before 2000. So we created a thesis around the space and figured developing new modern product was a better risk-adjusted return compared to repositioning existing cold assets. And so we became very granular in terms of the physical aspects that were important and smarter about the markets that we wanted to focus on. We found that Texas, for example, was the most underserved state from a capacity perspective. And we dove in further in Houston, uh, seem to be the most attractive city in Texas due to the large port. They also have access to produce and protein coming in from South America. You have transportation infrastructure and 
obviously Houston is a, a major large city that continues to grow in population. So we reached out to our local relationships and this opportunity came up. And what really excited us about this investment, firstly, its location. Um, this site is located within the heavy haul corridor of Houston, meaning you can carry heavier truckloads from the ports, which help reduce truck tra traffic. And secondly, the site also had inventory tax abatements, which is a huge competitive advantage to the end user who has to pay taxes on the product that they store here. And lastly, we had a first mover advantage. We were looking at what potentially was coming out of the ground and there were zero cold storage developments under construction at the time and the existing inventory in Houston was extremely outdated, but even still was 96% occupied. So the supply demand fundamentals were there for us. And lastly, the business plan was to create a quote unquote cold ready product, meaning we were developing the most flexible product to accommodate various users and tenants. And so we weren't building to the full scope and trying to guess on who that final end user would be. And so Jeff, you mentioned the word service industrial earlier, and I think that's a term that we've coined to describe industrial type assets that house service providers. So can you tell the audience a little bit about this non-traditional part of the industrial ecosystem? Yeah, so what we call service industrial, you'll hear words like small bay, shallow bay get thrown around, but um, what we're focused on are these smaller buildings, typically 10 to maybe 50,000 square feet in size, in infill dense locations. Again, all about servicing the more local rooftops and businesses within a metro, so it's not regional distribution focused. And you have a wide variety of tenancy. I mean, all these small businesses that power the economy, um, you know, that are providing services to make, repair, or sell goods. I mean, everything from suppliers to manufacturers, fabricators, craftsmen, technicians and contractors. Um, you'll have some automotive users and then consumer goods, some technology. Uma mentioned that we were just touring some product in, in Houston and it was a huge variety of tenants. One that serves Tesla and had their own nitrogen tank, for example. So you've got some people who are really investing infrastructure in their space to operate their businesses. It can even have some quasi-retail uses as well. And they're all smaller tenant suite sizes as well. So two to 10,000 square feet is more focused. A lot of folks, again, throw around that word small bay and shallow bay, and it's generally referring to, all right, that 10, 15, 20, 25,000 square foot suite, but in more traditional distribution with, with dock high loading. And flex product is not what we're focused on with heavier office finish. Um, sometimes it gets confused as well or, or lumped into and what we call service industrial. Um, and so it really is, it's all grade level loading that, that we're focused on. So you have pickup trucks and vans, not large tractor trailers going through your parking fields. Another thing we really like about this space, again, service industrial, as we define it and focus on, is you have these shorter lease terms. So you can really capture growth more frequently. Um, and there is a steady growth component, just given, again, a consistent wide variety of demand from all sorts of different businesses and users and a lack of supply. This is expensive to build the smaller product, to get the right locations, um, these info locations, just, there's not the land even available, uh, and you actually have negative supply. And when Victoria and I were driving around, you can see within the pool of all of these service industrial buildings, you had a bunch of stuff that used to be service industrial product that got knocked down in new nice townhomes or multifamily, or, or if you found a bigger site that you could demolish a bunch of small buildings, you replace it with more modern, last mile, uh, traditional industrial. So again, anytime you have strong and a wide variety of deep demand with shrinking supply, it's good for the fundamentals. 
you know, it sounds like the supply and demand fundamentals are setting up pretty well there. Victoria, Jeff was talking about the capital market environment for traditional industrial over the last few years, but the service industrial space is a little bit different, right? So what are some of the capital market dynamics for this specific niche within the industrial sector overall that makes it so compelling, in addition to some of that supply and demand just from a fundamental perspective that Jeff was mentioning? Yeah, for one, pricing is a lot more attractive. Traditional industrial cap rates really haven't adjusted as much as the buyers would like. And deals are still trading in that low to mid 5% range as the product remains one of the darling children relative to other product types. And in this service industrial space, you can buy for higher cap rates, sometimes even in the low 6% range, with still significantly below market rents, the ability to eventually get to a much higher yield on cost. So that's one of the main aspects that I see is pretty attractive. And then as Jeff mentioned, you can't really build this type of product in the infill locations if you'd like to. And you're seeing that negative supply as the developers tear down for higher and better uses. And lastly, what's compelling about the space is the risk return profile. You can achieve value-add returns on a core plus execution risk. The product, for the most part, stays full in terms of occupancy because there are a few places for tenants to relocate. And so you can maintain that attractive cash flow and still have some upside on the value-add component. And Jeff, bringing it all together, as you look at the year ahead, What's your outlook for traditional industrial real estate? Obviously, pricing's held up very well in the face of high interest rates and cap rates have stayed low. And fundamentals so far have continued to be very robust. And that's justified a lot of buyers to continue to pay these uh, low cap rates for traditional industrial. But is that going to hold? And how does that equation differ from some of the other niche sectors of industrial that we're looking at? Yeah, look. Remain bullish on the industrial sector as a whole longer term, but it's going through a repricing, misuncertainty, and a near-term supply-demand misbalance, at least in, in certain property profiles. I'm thinking, again, the larger regional distribution buildings. Uh, so we'll see where future growth rates settle out, but you're coming off extreme highs of, of the recent past. We'll still believe there's growth in the sector, but uh, it's, it's going to normalize. What we had leading up and in through the pandemic, I, I don't think that's sustainable really more bullish on the product that is more challenging to build, i.e. finding good infill sites and product that caters to a wider array of tenant profiles, so increased demand, and then really focusing on more mission-critical space than commodity di distribution, where a tenant can move out just to save a few bucks or, or be in the latest and greatest modern building. So it's really kind of focusing on that non-commodity specialized where as an investor and an owner, you can have some pricing power. So again, really prefer that industrial product with the longer term kind of consistent favorable supply demand characteristics, which is derived from location constraints and requirements. So that infill dense and good population growth, last mile warehouse service industrial product that fits that mold or specialized product like cold storage, where you still have growing and evolving demand and, and modern requirements that this, the current outdated inventory isn't well equipped to service. From a valuation perspective, now look, the markets clearly understand traditional industrial distribution warehouse space. And as you alluded to, Scott, I mean, the pricing has held up because it is a darling uh, of the property types. Something like cold storage is far more complicated and end user specific. So historically, you can get a yield premium for service industrial. Again, it's smaller and you don't typically have the big name credit tenants, although the larger institutional capital hasn't historically focused on it and driving down cap rates, meaning 
you know, folks like us that are, are willing to get in there, get our hands dirty and, and aggregate some of this uh, product can do so at, at much more attractive going in yields. But again, as Victoria mentioned, on stabilized product with significant mark-to-market opportunities. And, and it also has low CapEx as well in terms of the, the service industrial product. Um, so it's, it's you know, kind of like apartments for small businesses, but with better yield. That's a nice way to put it. I feel like the industrial sector has been kind of the sector that's seen rising tides lifting all boats. But just as we've seen a bit more uncertainty across capital markets, across economic growth, it's been really great to be kind of able to discern along some of the lines that you mentioned there, Jeff. So I, I think that's all we really have time for here today. Thank you again to Jeff and Victoria for joining us. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Front and Center. Thanks for listening to Front and Center. You can subscribe on your favorite streaming platform and please be sure to leave us a review. To stay up to date, you can visit our website at centersquare.com to access our thought leadership, sign up for our mailing list, or contact our team. We look forward to hearing from you. The content of this podcast is informational only and represents the viewpoints of the presenters at the time of recording. It should not be regarded as a solicitation nor investment advice. All information presented is subject to change at any time based on new data, analysis, or market conditions. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.